0: ...satisfy your own anger against us for our failures, for our brokenness, for our sin. You have solved the great problem that we all face. And so we look to you now and we ask that you would speak to us through the words printed on these pages. Speak to us freshly. Speak to us powerfully. We all need transformation and you do it by your word. And so we expect that and we ask you to do it this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I suspect many of us are very familiar with the words of James 5.15, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. We preached through the book of James back in 2020, and I think it might be fitting to revisit this verse before diving into our passage from Matthew this morning. This verse comes on the heels of verse 14, which says, "'Is anyone among you sick?' Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Thus, when Christians are sick, and it's possible that the situation James specifically has in view is when a Christian is bedridden ill so that they can't go to the elders themselves but must invite the elders to come to where they are. When Christians are sick, they are here commanded to summon the elders. Then, once summoned, the elders are commanded to pray over the sick person, over him, probably because he is lying in bed and cannot get up. What are the elders supposed to pray? What are they supposed to ask the Lord to do for the sick person? James says, right there in verse 15, that the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. So it seems that is what the elders are supposed to be asking the Lord to do, to save the sick person, to raise him up. The elders are to pray this promise of God, to ask the Lord to do what He's promised to do, right here. Save the sick person and raise him up. That's an interesting way to put it, don't you think? He doesn't say, and the prayer of faith will heal the sick person. Now, certainly saving the sick person may very well include healing the sick person from his ailment immediately. But it seems like James wants the elders to be making a deeper, more important request. The elders are to ask the Lord to save the sick person, totally. To raise the sick person up on the last day in the resurrection. That is the promise that the elders need to be believing when they pray for the sick person. Ask the Lord to save the sick person. Ask the Lord to raise him up and believe that the Lord will do those things that He has promised. That's the prayer of faith. Asking the Lord to do something He's promised to do and believing that He will fulfill His promise. Thus, if God doesn't, heal the sick person miraculously and immediately, that doesn't mean that God hasn't kept His promise. And that doesn't imply that there's anything wrong or deficient about the sick person's faith or the elder's faith. But let me add one more important element from earlier in James's letter. The prayer of faith in chapter 5 is the same thing as praying with faith mentioned in chapter 1. In the opening paragraph of James's letter, he famously challenges believers to count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds. And he explains the benefits that God intends to bring to us through our trials. Then in James 1, 5, and 6, he addresses believers this way. If any of you lacks wisdom, and in context... He most assuredly means if you realize you lack wisdom in the midst of a trial. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Thus he commands believers in the midst of a trial, and sickness can be a trial, to pray, to ask God specifically for wisdom. When we face a trial, we need wisdom to endure it properly and to receive the benefits that God offers through our trials. But we need to ask God with faith. What does he expect us to believe when we're asking God for wisdom in the midst of a trial? We must pray for wisdom, believing that God is good that He gives generously, meaning that He gives with a single-minded intention to do you good. So, if we hold together the teaching of James 1 and James 5, what is the prayer of faith? It is asking God to do something that He's promised to do, believing that He is good and that He has a single-minded intention to do only good to His children, and believing that God will fulfill His promises, He will do what He has said He will do. As we return to the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to dig deeper into the connection between prayer and faith. As we've been in the Gospel of Matthew for almost a year now, we've seen how Jesus is bringing the heavenly kingdom to earth. Matthew has told the story in such a way to root Jesus' identity, His words, and His deeds in the Old Testament. Matthew has highlighted how Jesus has taught with the royal authority of the king, calling his followers to live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven now. And Matthew's highlighted how Jesus has demonstrated his royal authority through a variety of miracles, and in particular, expelling demons from people, setting sinful people free from demonic slavery and oppression. The disciples have been along for the ride, but they have been authorized and empowered by Jesus to do these same kinds of things, these same kinds of authoritative deeds. We've watched the disciples struggle to understand and to fail to believe and listen to Jesus. At the end of Matthew 16, we got to hear Peter affirm correctly Jesus' royal messianic identity. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Then Peter immediately chastised his Lord for saying that he must suffer, die, and rise from the dead. And then at the beginning of Matthew 17, Jesus took Peter, James, and John to the top of a high mountain with him to witness his transfiguration, an event that they have been forbidden to talk about until Jesus is raised from the dead. Now, Jesus and these three disciples are coming down the mountain, where they, along with the rest of the disciples, are about to get a very important lesson. If the three disciples, Peter, James, and John, were supposed to understand from the transfiguration that they really need to listen to Jesus, now they are going to see how listening must be accompanied by faith. John MacArthur sets the stage nicely. He writes, For this lesson, the scene shifts dramatically from the mountain of glory To the valley of despair. We begin in Matthew chapter 17 verses 14 and 15 with a father's desperate prayer. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. I can almost hear Peter saying to James and John, you see, this is why we should have stayed up on the mountain. We've moved from the heavenly heights to the demonic depths here. A crowd and a commotion welcomed Jesus and the three disciples back down to the ground. Mark's gospel tells us that the rest of the disciples were heard arguing with some scribes, but bursting through the conflict... A desperate father approaches Jesus on bended knee. What we read in verse 15 is very much a prayer of faith. The man says, Lord, have mercy on my son. The Lord promises in the scriptures to have mercy on the sick, the weak, and the oppressed who come to him. So the prayer, Lord, have mercy, is a good way to pray. What we'll see in just a minute, however, when we glance at Mark's account a little more closely, is that this man's faith is blended, mixed, confused. We might even say that there is some doubt in his expression of faith. Yet, he receives the mercy he asks for. But before we look more closely at the father's faith, let's consider diagnosing the boy. Each of the gospel writers describe what's wrong with him a bit differently. Sometimes when the gospel writers give a different account of a conversation, I find it helpful to attempt to reconstruct what was actually said. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all reflecting eyewitness testimony of this event. And as is common for eyewitness testimony, the details are different. So, after this man makes his initial plea, Lord, have mercy on my son, Matthew has him begin to explain what has been happening to his son. I think the father said the words that Mark and Luke records first, and then Matthew included the father's last words here. So, if you look on the next slide, if we can put that up on the screen, you can see how I piece them together. You might not be able to read that real well as I see that, but sorry about that. The words that are highlighted in red up there come from Mark's account. Luke's words are highlighted in green, and then Matthew's words are just there in the end in white. So, according, as we compress all of this together, what's wrong with the boy according to the father? He has a spirit that makes him mute, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he suddenly cries out, and it convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. It shatters him and will hardly leave him. He has seizures and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. So the father recognized that this was no ordinary medical condition. This was caused by a demon. Mark's account of the father's words makes this clear. He refers to it as literally a mute spirit, Or, as the ESV rightly understands the phrase, a spirit that makes him mute. How could he know that it wasn't an ordinary disease with a merely physical cause? I suspect it was because he saw how his son wasn't simply falling down at random. He seemed to be falling down as though he were being shoved into the fire and into the water repeatedly. This young lad would have had to have constant supervision to protect him from deadly harm. As a side note, this is no indicator at all that every case of seizures or epilepsy is caused by a demon. The father has reasons to suspect demonic activity, and Jesus will later confirm his suspicions in this particular case. So, this is a desperate situation. Next, the father tells Jesus that he brought his son to Jesus' disciples, asking them and expecting them to expel the demon and heal him. Let's consider the disciples' failure for a moment. Look at verse 16. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. The disciples' inability, their failure, is a key component of this story. The focus is not on the miracle that Jesus performs. The focus is on the disciples' failure and their need for faith. The father surely had heard of Jesus and his disciples successfully healing sick people and casting demons out of people. When this man first approaches his disciples, I imagine he was confident. I imagine he had faith. He was expecting the disciples to be able to heal his son. And we, readers of the Gospel of Matthew, should be surprised at the disciples' failure. After all, we read back in Matthew chapter 10, how Jesus had called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. He then sent them out and commanded them to heal the sick, raise the dead, Cleanse lepers, cast out demons. Now, Matthew never gives us any examples of the disciples actually doing any of those things, but their surprise at not being able to expel this demon suggests that they have, up to this point, had a very high success rate, probably 100%. Something is different this time, and we'll come back to what that is in just a minute. So in response to the fathers telling Jesus that the disciples were unable to heal his sick, demon-oppressed son, Jesus expresses some divine frustration. Look at verse 17. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. Some view this exclamation by Jesus as an expression of merely human emotion. Jesus, the man, is frustrated with the lack of faith on display in this generation. However, I see this as divine frustration specifically because it echoes God's own expressions of frustration in the Old Testament. The double how long echoes most closely Numbers chapter 14. In response to the 12 spies' report about the land of Canaan and its gigantic inhabitants, the people of Israel believed the majority report and refused to believe the Lord, who had promised to give them victory over the inhabitants of the land and to give them the land of Canaan to possess. Caleb and Joshua believed the Lord's word and tried to persuade the people, but the majority ruled on that day. And then the majority was getting ready to stone Caleb and Joshua to death. But the glory of Yahweh appeared at the tent of meeting, and we read these words in Numbers 14.11. And Yahweh said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I have done among them. Also, Jesus' indictment of the people, including his disciples, as a faithless and twisted generation, recalls Yahweh's own judgment of the people reflected in the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32.5. This song was a prophetic indictment of the people. Deuteronomy 31.19, setting the song up, indicates that this song was to serve as a perpetual witness against the people of Israel. They were to learn this song and teach it to their children before they even entered the land of Canaan. Yahweh tells Moses in Deuteronomy thirty-one twenty-one, And when many evils and troubles have come upon them, this song shall confront them as a witness, for it will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring. For I know what they are inclined to do even today, before I have brought them into the land that I swore to give. Thus, when Moses complains about the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 32, five, being a crooked and twisted generation, he's actually prophesying. They were a crooked and twisted generation in his day, to be sure, but this is what they will be when God sends them into exile. The song goes on to characterize them as idolatrous, and their idolatry is what would provoke Yahweh to spurn them and send them into exile using the Assyrian and Babylonian armies. Already, Yahweh, through Moses, was indicating that this was the path that they would walk. And then in verse 20, he describes them as children in whom there is no faithfulness. The flip side of faithfulness is faith. And the Greek Old Testament uses the normal Greek word for faith in this verse. So when Jesus indicts this generation as faithless, he's indicating that they've got no faith in the Lord. The generation of his day, even after the Lord had graciously brought the Jewish people back into the land he had graciously given them, is just like the generation of Israel who went into exile. They remain to this day under the judgment of God, faithless, twisted, corrupt idolaters. And Jesus is here responding to the Father's report of the disciples' failure. So the disciples are being included as part of this generation, this faithless and twisted generation at this point. They are part of the faithless and twisted generation who provokes the Lord to a holy frustration. Interestingly, the reference to them as a twisted generation should remind us of Paul's words later in Philippians 2.15, where he applies this phrase to the whole world. All of humanity, at all times, in all places, is a twisted generation. Not merely the Jews of the first century. Thus, we are all caught up in this indictment. All of humanity could be spoken of with these terms. Even the disciples... The twelve men who were closest to Jesus during his lifetime on earth show themselves to be faithless and twisted. While Jesus' rhetorical how long questions are surely an expression of his frustration, they actually have an answer. How long will Jesus be with and put up with these people? Not forever. How long will Jesus be with and put up with these people? Only forever. Probably for a month longer at this point in the story. He is conscious of his coming execution. He will be leaving very soon. The date of the crucifixion is on the calendar and it is right on the horizon for Jesus. He knows that he has been sent by his Father and he knows that he will be returning soon to his Father, leaving behind, in a certain sense, this generation of people. But even Jesus' divine frustration is tempered with mercy and compassion. He summons the disciples to bring to him the demonized boy. And in verse 18, we'll see Jesus' defeat of the demon. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. We know from the other gospel writers that the demon has one last hurrah, throwing the boy down to the ground one last time, forcing him into a silent fit, causing him to thrash about and foam at the mouth. But, as always, Jesus commanded the demon to leave, and the demon left immediately. The boy immediately stopped foaming at the mouth and was able to speak again, and Jesus lifted him to his feet, normal and healthy. Matthew moves past this very quickly. He wants to focus on the disciples, so we move on into the climax of the lesson of the story. They ask why they were unable to do what Jesus just did. And Jesus teaches them about mountain-moving faith. Look at verses 19 to 21. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain... Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. This part of the story is not recorded by Luke at all, but it will be helpful for us to draw in Mark's account of this conversation. So, the question is, why were the disciples unable? Matthew says it was because of the disciples' little faith. Mark says, in Mark nine twenty nine. This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, if you're reading the King James Version or the New King James Version of Mark 9.29, you'll read the words by prayer and fasting. And in the King James Version and the New King James Version, you'll see that whole sentence from Mark 9.29 repeated verbatim in Matthew 17.21. If you're reading pretty much any other Bible version, you'll see Matthew 17.21 marked off with brackets or relegated to a footnote. If you don't notice the footnote, you might be alarmed to think that your Bible has skipped a verse or removed a verse. But rest assured, that is not what is going on. The verse does not belong to Matthew's gospel and should not be considered a part of God's word here. I'll be brief and oversimplify the matter. If you're troubled or confused by this issue, please come talk with me sometime. I can help you work through this. I think John MacArthur summarizes the issue very clearly and simply, so let me just quote him to begin. This kind of demon goes does not go out except by prayer, Jesus declared. Although that phrase is not found in the best manuscripts of Matthew, indicated by brackets in some versions, it is a genuine saying of Jesus and is found in Mark's account. Mark 9.29, from which an early scribe probably picked it up and added it to Matthew. However, the last two words of the verse, and fasting, are not found in the best manuscripts of any gospel. So, Mark does record Jesus implying a lack of prayer as part of the reasons the disciples could not cast this demon out. But Matthew focuses on faith. From the evidence of the biblical manuscripts, Jesus did not say anything about fasting in this context. Fasting is never presented in Scripture as a condition for receiving special blessing or power from God. Never, ever. Okay? I'll add some words from Pastor Doug O'Donnell, whose sermons from Matthew's Gospel had helped me a lot over the years. Regarding Matthew 17, 21, he says, We don't have this verse in our more modern editions of the Bible because the earliest and best Greek manuscripts discovered in the last 400 years, since the publication of the King James Version, do not have it. But be not dismayed by textual variants. It is likely that some pious monk, while copying Matthew, inserted this phrase on prayer because that's how Mark's account ends. This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer, Mark 9, 29. And that monk inserted the bit about fasting because, well, medieval monks liked to fast and thought everyone else should as well. It's not a joke. So then, with that technical detail out of the way, why could the disciples not cast out this demon? Matthew focuses on the little faith of the disciples. Only Matthew records Jesus' teaching about mountain-moving faith here. But I don't think Mark's emphasis on prayer says anything different. Rather, isn't prayer just the verbal expression of faith? When we ask God to do something, shouldn't we be asking Him to do things we believe that He can and will do? One writer has described prayer as faith-breathing faith breathing More specifically, it is our faith exhaling. Listening to God would be inhaling. As we take in God's Word, we listen to Him as the disciples were commanded up on the mountain. And then we respond with prayer. We breathe in by listening. We exhale by speaking. Praying to Him. Commentator Dale Bruner writes, If we talk to Him... Without listening to him, no matter how much faith we believe we possess, we cannot honestly claim that we know what he wants. And I would add James' words about the one who doesn't pray with faith, James 1.7, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. When Jesus actually casts out the demon successfully and heals the boy, isn't he responding to the prayer of the Father? And in Mark's account, very famously, we recall that there was something wrong with the father's faith. Matthew compresses the story, as he often does. After the disciples brought the boy to Jesus, and the demon convulsed the boy one more time, Jesus adds some tension into the encounter. He doesn't immediately cast the demon out. Instead, he asks the father, how long has this been happening to the boy? And the father indicates that it's been happening over the course of several years, from young childhood and then the father says these words to Jesus in the middle of mark 9:22 but if you can do anything have compassion on us and help us jesus responds with what i take to be shocked indignation in verse 23 if you can all things are possible for one who believes and then we read in verse 24 Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe! Help my unbelief! And then Jesus finally casts the demon out of the boy and heals him. Perhaps Jesus is not immediately expelling the demon, stirred some anxiety in the father. Jesus' disciples had failed. Now, Jesus is asking questions that surely must have seemed irrelevant from the father's vantage point. The father sees this as an urgent matter, and he wants to relieve his son from any more suffering. Perhaps the father quickly reasons, maybe the fact that the demon has been doing this to my son for so long means that the demon's, boy, the demon's hold on the boy is too strong, too strong even for Jesus. Jesus. Maybe this is a hopeless cause. And then Jesus responds sharply to that word, if. Like he responded to Peter's, if. If it is you, Lord, on the Sea of Galilee. When he pulled Peter out of the water, he asked him why he doubted and chastised him for his little faith. The word if in our prayers might be a sign of our unbelief. Not always. But if we're praying, if it is you, Lord, if we're addressing God but not really sure that He's listening, we might be expressing our unbelief rather than our belief. Or if we're praying, if you can, we don't really believe in God's power. But there is one prayer that starts with if that God delights to hear. If you are willing. Jesus even prayed this way at least on one occasion. In his prayer to his heavenly Father, he echoes the words he said to this desperate Father. In Mark 14:36, we read Jesus praying, "Abba, Father, all things are possible for you." And in Luke's telling of the same account in Gethsemane, we read Jesus praying, Luke 22:42, "Father, if you are willing, Remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That's a good prayer. That's a prayer of faith. We aren't told ahead of time what God's will is for a particular situation. Thus, if we must use the word if in our prayers, we dare not say, if it's really you, Lord, or if you can, if you're able... But rather, it is fully appropriate to say to our Lord, if you are willing, please heal this person. That's not a sign of unbelief. We, like Jesus, must be willing to trust our Heavenly Father to do what is best in response to our requests. Father knows best, always. We've seen the disciples chastised multiple times in Matthew for little faith. Here, it resulted in their failure to do something that they had been authorized to do, cast out demons and heal the sick. Apparently, as Bruner suggests, this authority is, quote, not a controllable possession that disciples can use at will or without the faith that says its prayers. But there's more to the story. What does little faith mean? Is it little or is it none? Is it little faith or is it no faith? Jesus had just included the disciples among this generation, this faithless, no faith generation. Was that hyperbole? Exaggeration? Or should we recognize that little faith really is no faith at all? Or... Perhaps measuring faith is a futile exercise that we shouldn't really think in those terms at all. Why couldn't the disciples cast out the demon? There was something wrong with their faith. It was defective and ineffectual. It didn't get the job done. So what's the defect? Perhaps little faith is not so much small in size, whatever that might mean, but perhaps little faith is poor in quality, shoddy faith, because it's not actually directed toward Jesus and His Word. Perhaps, having been authorized by Jesus to do these great things, the disciples had subtly shifted to think of this authority as their own. Thus, when they went to perform this miracle, they were actually only trusting in themselves. Perhaps we can see this attitude revealed in the disciples' question. Why could we not cast it out? Interestingly, in Matthew's gospel, little faith doesn't find its corrective or its opposite in big faith, great faith. We do read about certain individuals having great faith in this gospel, but great faith is never set opposite of little faith. Instead, as we're about to see, the opposite of little faith is mustard seed faith. Seems pretty small to me. But before we get there, let's consider another side to this answer to round out the picture we have here. Mark gives us another piece to the puzzle in his account. Look again at Mark 9.29. And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Jesus says, This kind of demon. So there's something unusual about this demon compared with every other demon the disciples had encountered. What could it be? Mark's account has a unique detail, coming from the lips of Jesus, that I believe reveals the uniqueness of the demon and the other reason the disciples failed. There was something about the demon that neither the disciples nor the Father knew, but Jesus did know. Mark is the only gospel writer who records what Jesus said to the demon. Look at Mark 9.25. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Only Jesus knew that the demon not only caused the boy to have seizures and be unable to speak, but the demon also caused the boy to be deaf. Now, muteness and deafness are often associated, but not always. I believe this is the key and the reason the disciples needed to pray rather than simply command the demon to leave like they usually did. I assume that the disciples would have cast out demons the same way Jesus does. He commanded demons to leave, and then the demons left every time. So when this father brought his boy to the nine disciples, I assume they would have attempted to address the demon in the name of Jesus and command it to leave. But if the demon caused the boy to be deaf, then perhaps we should understand that this clever demon had essentially barricaded himself inside the boy, putting up a blockade in the boy's ears against the disciples' verbal attack. Had the demon been able to hear their authoritative command it would have had to leave. But by ensuring that the boy couldn't hear their voice, the demon also made it so that he, it, couldn't hear their voice. So, when the demon didn't respond to the disciples' command, what should they have done? They should have expressed their faith by praying, asking the Lord to rescue this boy and heal him, which is what the father ends up doing. But their failure shriveled up their faith so that praying didn't even cross their minds. Jesus didn't pray to expel the demon. Why not? Because He can speak in a way that overcomes deafness. His Word penetrates through deafness, even into spiritually dead hearts to give life. But Matthew shows that Jesus uses this as a teaching opportunity for his disciples about the true nature of faith. But why does he compare faith with a mustard seed? He just chastised them for having little faith, and then he begins the lesson with the words, if you have faith. Doesn't that imply that they don't have the faith he's about to describe? Now, what we know about a mustard seed is that it is super tiny, right? Right? Here's a picture of one on the next slide up on the tip of someone's finger. You, can, you might have noticed the tiny one on the front of your bulletin, or maybe you didn't because, again, it's so tiny, but it's there on the front of your bulletin. So Jesus just chastised them for having little faith, and now he suggests that they don't even have faith that size. So either he's saying that their faith is so tiny that a mustard seed outweighs it, or he's saying they don't actually have any faith at all. They are part of this faithless and twisted generation. Perhaps size is not actually what's being talked about here. Yes, a mustard seed is famous for being tiny, but Jesus is here saying that tiny faith can move mountains. But mustard seeds, like all seeds, have life in them. They're not dead. Del Bruner writes, The point of Jesus' teaching here is that even if our faith is small, it is not feeble. For it is alive like seed, and God will do wonders with it and us. Thus, perhaps, it's more the relational, life-giving element of faith that's being highlighted in this comparison. Commentator R.T. France suggests, Faith is not a measurable commodity, but a relationship. And what achieves results through prayer is not a superior quantity of faith, but the unlimited power of God on which faith, any faith, can draw. The disciples, Jesus implies, had failed to bring any faith at all to bear on this situation. This is living faith versus dead faith, which takes us back to the book of James. It's not the size of faith, but the focus of faith. Life and power come through faith in Jesus, not faith in myself, and not even faith in the gifts God gives. That leads us to a final question. What is the image of mountain moving intended to communicate? In all of the material I've read about this passage and related passages, over and over again, the suggestion is made that moving a mountain was proverbial in Jesus' day for doing something really hard or impossible. But at least in all that I read, no one has provided a single scrap of evidence for that assertion. When writers do suggest some evidence, they quote from Jewish rabbis hundreds of years after Jesus. Why do I bring that up? Who cares? I don't think moving a mountain was proverbial for doing something impossible or really hard in Jesus' day. It became a proverbial kind of saying, later, probably based on a misunderstanding of what Jesus is saying here. I think Jesus is making a very specific point. And when He uses this image again in Matthew 21, we'll see there that He's making a different but very specific point with this image. So here, what is the point? What doesn't this mountain represent? Not any hard or impossible thing. Instead, it is specifically picturing what the disciples just failed to do. Notice, again, the way Jesus words His teaching. If the disciples have mustard seed faith, then you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. What does that sound like? It sounds like saying to a demon inside a boy... Leave, and then the demon leaves. They tried that without mustard seed faith in Jesus, and they failed. And when they failed, they didn't think to express faith by praying, asking the Lord to rescue this boy and heal him. And by the way, if you ever encounter a situation where you become convinced that a demon is involved... This is the strategy you ought to pursue. Deliverance ministries, so-called, are very off on their understanding of how to handle demons. If this kind needs to be dealt with by prayer, that's going to be my strategy for any kind. It works. That's just a side note. Here, Jesus' point, again, is not on that but on their faith or lack thereof. Jesus then extends the application by saying, and nothing will be impossible for you. In Mark's account, Jesus had said to the Father, all things are possible for one who believes. So is this then a blank check kind of offer to the disciples? If they just have enough faith or the right kind of faith, then they can do anything and everything that they set their minds to. I suspect not. As Dale Bruner puts it, however, Jesus promises an omnicompetence that takes the breath away. Omnicompetence. I like that word. All kinds of competence. And it reminded me of 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17, where Paul writes... All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete. Or, some translations say, competent. What does that mean? Equipped for every good work. All Scripture equips each disciple for every good work. You don't need to go anywhere else. This takes us back to the lesson of the transfiguration. Listen to the word of Jesus. Heed His word. And in doing so, trusting what He says is true, seeking to obey what He tells you to do in the Scripture, nothing will be impossible for us. But Scripture provides the contextual limiters here for the disciples Casting out demons and healing the sick was something the king had commanded, authorized, and empowered them to do. So, your wish is not his command. Jesus is no genie. But rather, when his commands become your wishes, then we see this challenge accepted and his mission accomplished. So, Moved any mountains lately? Don't you have mustard seed faith, Christian? Have you done anything, anything in obedience to the Word of God? Then indeed, you have moved a mountain. The Father had mustard seed faith. And He was the one who cried out in desperation and possibly confusion, I believe, help my unbelief! If this mountain represents the demonic enslavement of this boy and his resulting physical suffering, and if moving this mountain represents expelling the demon and healing the boy as the result of mustard seed faith, then surely the father exercised mustard seed faith in his prayer of faith. Lord, have mercy on my son. That's all it took. Jesus is the one who actually moves the mountain. And even when Jesus tells the disciples that they will command the mountain and it will move in response to their command, it only moves because they're trusting Jesus to actually do the heavy lifting. The kind of faith on display here in the Father, mountain-moving faith, is simply taking Jesus at His word. I don't think we should either limit mountain moving to the performance of miracles or extend mountain moving to any particular thing I happen to want God to do for me. The teaching that is summarized by the phrases name it and claim it or the kind of so-called praying that uses the language of decree and declare is destructive, false, and evil. And the fact that this passage is used to support... That is blasphemous violence against God's Word. We do not and cannot and should not want to control God. Instead, Jesus is here illustrating ordinary Christian faith. A faith that believes God's power to accomplish His purposes, trusts God's wisdom, in executing those purposes, and rests content in God's answers to our desperate prayers of faith, even when the answer is no. It matters what we are trusting Jesus to do in any given context. Does the mountain being moved always look like what we expect? No. When we pray for healing or when we pray for the most impossible thing we can think of, which is the salvation of a sinner, and we don't see it happen, does that mean our faith is deficient? Is it my fault they don't believe? What does God's Word command us to do? What is our responsibility toward our currently unsaved loved ones? We are responsible to tell them about Jesus, to show them what Jesus is like through the way that we live our lives, and we are responsible to ask the Lord to save them, to give them new hearts. But it is not our responsibility to make them believe. We do not, cannot, and are not expected to save anyone. The Father in this story is the good example, not the disciples'. He comes to Jesus kneeling, humbly begging for mercy, believing that Jesus can solve his problem, but uncertain as to whether or not Jesus would be willing. He doesn't need to know whether it is Jesus' will or not to heal his son before he approaches and asks. That's mustard seed faith. Even as Jesus chastises the if... Because the Father is no longer confident that Jesus has the ability to do what is required. He doesn't indicate that the Father needs more or larger faith. Jesus knows that our faith is weak. It's not impressive. It's not big and strong. And it probably never will be in this life. But that doesn't hinder Jesus from doing what Jesus intends to do in your life. Never accept the lie that the reason God is not acting in your life the way you are wanting and asking Him to is because you don't have enough faith. Nevertheless, every one of us needs to grow in our faith. Every one of us needs to trust Jesus more consistently. Every one of us needs to believe His Word more completely. Every one of us has moments of doubt where we could legitimately cry out with this Father, I believe, help my unbelief. And in those moments, that's exactly what we must do. Cry out. Cry out. When our faith is deficient, when we find ourselves believing lies, it is in that moment that we must turn to the one we're not really trusting and ask Him to help us. And the repeated promise of Scripture is, He will. The hymn we opened with this morning is exactly right in its chorus. We need grace from Jesus to trust Jesus more. I think I'd like for us to sing that the music team would join me on stage here just to close out our time. You want to trust Jesus more? Ironically, you've got to ask Him for that. Ironically, you've got to ask Him because you can't muster it yourself. You can't change your faith into mustard seed faith all by yourself. You can't infuse your faith with life all by yourself. God does that. So, would you stand? And sing this song like you mean it and like you really are dependent on God's grace.